0: What does it mean to be called crazy in a crazy world? Listen to Madness Radio, voices and visions from outside mental health. Sponsored by peer-run support communities, Freedom Center, The Icarus Project, and Portland Hearing Voices. Madness Radio can be heard on FM stations on the Pacifica Radio Network and is streaming, podcasting, and archived at madnessradio.net. Welcome to our new broadcast station, KBOO, in Portland, Oregon. Welcome to Madness Radio. This is your host, Will Hall. Uh, today our guest is Professor Gail Hornstein. Gail is professor of psychology at Mount Holyoke College. Um, she's the author of two books. Her previous book is To Redeem One Person is to Redeem the World: The Life of Frida From Reichman. And her new book is Agnes's Jacket, A Psychologist's Search for the Meanings of Madness. Uh, Gail is a co-facilitator of the Hearing Voices group that is co-sponsored. By the Recovery Learning Community and the Freedom Center in Holyoke, Massachusetts. And she is a longtime ally and collaborator with the psychiatric survivor movement. Gail, it's a pleasure to have you today on Madness Radio. Will, it's so great to be here. Congratulations on your new book, Agnes's Jacket. It's a fantastic um, accomplishment that looks at some of the um, undercurrents of what's happening in approaches to madness and what gets called psychosis, both in the United States and in um, europe and um, we were really honored to have you as an active participant um, for years at the freedom center support group and the freedom center is actually um one of the featured uh, subjects of Agnes's jacket. So it's really great to have you on the show. People should also check out your book, To Redeem One Person is to Redeem the World, which is the biography of very much a maverick psychotherapist, um, Frieda Fromm-Reichmann, who had a very, very humane and compassionate approach um, to psychosis and madness and, and helping people in distress. How did you get started with your interest in this kind of alternative approach, Gail?
1: I think most people who study from an academic perspective or from a historical perspective, as I uh, initially did, uh, any aspect of psychiatry or psychoanalysis or psychology, start with the work of professionals, and they focus on professionals. And although it is true that I wrote a book about a psychiatrist, that first book about Frieda Fromm-Reichmann, my longest-term interest has been in... Accounts of madness written by people who have firsthand experience. And in the first chapter of Agnes's Jacket, the new book, I trace some of this history and I talk about how I had been fascinated since I was a teenager with the books that people wrote about their own experiences of madness. I, I discovered these books in libraries when I was a teenager and I started searching for them. And even though nobody else I knew read books like this, and most other young women I knew were reading the classics and Jane Eyre and books like that, I was reading books by people who'd been mental patients. And I found them absolutely fascinating because of the honesty, and the vividness and the complexity with which people describe their experiences that were so unusual and often so agonizing. And I was so impressed by the clarity and the insight of these books. And I collected them for years, and this was kind of a private activity that I did. And when I went to graduate school in psychology, I was studying for my PhD. I discovered, somewhat to my shock, really, that my professors and the other students, the other graduate students in my program, thought that this was kind of odd that I read these books by the people who were the patients, rather than focusing on the people who were the professionals.
0: There's kind of an assumption that, well, these are crazy people, so they don't really understand their own experience. They need someone else to explain it.
1: Exactly. And, of course, I was studying for a PhD in psychology, and so my focus, everyone assumes, should be on what do psychologists say. And, of course, I was interested in that as well, but I retained this interest and Perhaps being a bit of a rebel myself, uh, the more that people discouraged me from this interest, the more intense it became. And especially, I couldn't understand why this body of material wasn't treated more seriously by mental health professionals. And it helped that I was not myself training to be a therapist. I'm a professor of psychology, and I teach psychology in a college, but I am not myself a mental health professional. I don't treat people in psychotherapy. I've never sent anyone to a hospital. I've never given them a medication. I I don't have anything to do with that kind of um, work. And even when I was in graduate school, I was not studying to become a therapist. I wasn't learning how to give people psychological tests or any of those kinds of things. So I was a bit freer in what I could focus on, and I was a bit less defensive, I think, than some of my fellow students who were busy identifying with being a future mental health professional and needing to feel like everything professionals did was right. And so I developed this interest, and I learned really not to talk about it that much among fellow professionals, but I continued to collect these books, and over a period of time, uh, when I found that there were hundreds of first person narratives of madness, I began to compile a bibliography so as to make available the list of titles to other people so that other people could find out about these. Um, because not only were they so insightful, just from a really a social science perspective, I thought that we had to acknowledge the fact that this is a huge body of material. It just had to be treated seriously because there's so much of it and because it's so varied and it's so diverse. So I began to compile this bibliography, which now, I think we can, we can maybe talk more about this, um, this bibliography, which is now in its fourth edition, has more than 700 titles on it of first-person narratives of madness. And this is available
0: uh, for people to download and take a look at on your website, gailhornstein.com. is that right?
1: Yes, it is. It's available for free download, and um, uh, many, many people link to this bibliography all over the world, and people are welcome to do that, um, and there's information about it on the website. Um, but this leads back to Agnes's jacket. The reason I wrote this book was because after years of reading these first-person narratives myself, it was clear to me that If we thought about psychosis or any of the states that get labeled psychosis or madness, from the point of view of people who experience them, we would have a completely different set of assumptions about those experiences than we would if we started from the assumptions that mental health professionals use. So Agnes's jacket is really the result of having read all those narratives for so many years and thought about what are the implications of thinking about madness from this other point of view
0: and you say in your book that from the time that people were writing and publishing books and writing memoirs and writing autobiographies there's always been people writing about their experiences with going mad with going crazy and how they came back and what they went through and how they managed to recover or get themselves uh... back together um that this is a long-standing literature it's been around from the very beginning of the novel and been the very beginning of of autobiography itself
1: that's absolutely right and and some of the most interesting narratives on my bibliography are ones that were written say in the fifteenth century the sixteenth century before psychiatry came to exist as a specialized field of medicine and Of course, people writing prior to that time were not diagnosed in any way. There wasn't anyone to diagnose them. There wasn't any categories of mental dysfunction uh, with which they could be diagnosed. For instance, I write about a fascinating book called The Book of Marjorie Kemp, which was um, written, actually, it was dictated because Marjorie Kemp was a Uh, a woman living in uh, 15th century England, and she was, unfortunately, like many women of the day, illiterate, uh, but she dictated her experiences to two priests who were among the literate people of the day. Um, And her book, which is filled with unusual experiences, she hears voices, she has many, many experiences that today would be labeled psychotic, Her book is considered by scholars of literature to be the first autobiography in English, not just the first madness narrative, but the first autobiography by anyone uh, written in English as opposed to Latin um, or some um, non-vernacular language.
0: And in this literature of people writing about their own madness experiences, there's an enormous diversity. I mean, there are people who talk about going out of their minds and coming back and recovering and talking about their return to sanity. And then there are folks who don't see themselves as crazy or insane, but from the outside, they're very, very unusual experiences. There are folks who talk about deeply spiritual experiences that they went through. They were very positive and and life-affirming, and they feel like they grew from. And then other people who talk about it in terms of of illness and disease and getting swept up in something that was very destructive and, and life-threatening or other kinds of experiences there's a whole range of kinds of approaches to what madness is no there's no single answer to that
1: That's absolutely right and to me that's the starting point for a radical restructuring of our understanding of these kinds of experiences because the whole notion diagnostic system like the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual uh, that's published by the American Psychiatric Association or any other classification system, there's another system used in Europe published by the World Health Organization called the ICD, International Classification of Diseases, any of these classification systems make the assumption that you can group people's experiences together into categories like schizophrenia, bipolar illness, dissociative disorder, and so on. And that the so-called symptoms that people have in common for these kinds of so-called disorders erase, essentially, the differences in experience between people. And Agnes's second and my whole approach starts from the opposite assumption, based on reading these first-person accounts, that... If you start with people 's own experiences, you are overwhelmed at every point with the diversity, the variation, the differences between people 's experiences. And I think in and of itself, that should tell us that diagnostic systems like these, like the DSM and all the other ones that have been proposed are automatically limited by their oversimplifying and their glossing over or even sometimes erasing all of these differences, that the assumption that everyone with the diagnosis of schizophrenia is the same.
0: And so you get people talking about bipolar disorder is this or schizophrenia is this rather than saying, here's what I experienced. This is my experience and it may have some overlap, it may have some patterns, it may have some things that you share, but you cannot reduce it to a category that's going to group everybody together because that ends up leading you in a direction of very cookie-cutter, one-size-fits-all ways of helping people which really miss the individuality involved.
1: I would even go further than that, that not only the individuality, I think you miss an understanding of these experiences themselves that the assumption that you can classify them in these ways especially using a system like the DSM which doesn't include anything at all about the meaning of the experience for the person I think you are essentially preventing an understanding of what the experience is for the person. I think these diagnostic systems lead us in exactly the wrong direction because they lead us away from the meaningful aspects of people's experiences. And so then, it's no surprise, once you use that kind of a classification, that people would say, well, these experiences don't mean anything. They're just gibberish. People just say nonsense.
0: And I think that the irony of this is that actually the process of diagnosis and categorizing people can actually become an obstacle to someone getting better and getting an understanding about their experience. I mean, if you think of it just in common sense terms, if you're in trouble or you have a problem, you want to talk about it. You want to have someone understand you so that you can start to make sense of what you need to do to deal with the situation that you're in. And the diagnostic process puts a real um, stop on that kind of human connection of telling our stories, getting someone to listen to us, explaining what we're going through, getting some sense of understanding, overcoming isolation. And I think this is, and this is really one of the things that I love about your work, Gail, is that you've identified this huge gap between what it is that mental patients, people who are identified as having mental disorders, say about our own experiences, and then what professionals say about the experiences of mental patients. And there's this huge gap between the two things. And it's its a power difference, really. It's one group, the profession has the power to define, to silence, to categorize, to ignore, to not listen to what people are saying about their own experiences. And I think this is really the thread that runs through your approach and the approach the Freedom Center, the approach of the Hearing Voices Movement is to say, look, let's start by connecting with people and saying, what is happening to you? Let's talk with you about what is your experience as you understand it. And let's go through the process of, of trying to make some kind of connection, even if it seems unusual, strange, bizarre, incomprehensible, confusing, whatever it is, at least the effort of trying to listen and trying to make that connection can itself be a, be a healing process that gets missed. I think in our medical and pharmaceutical and professional pr- approach in the mental health system today.
1: Yes, exactly. And before we even can get to the point where someone's experience is being crammed into a diagnostic category and um, reformulated as pathological, um, even before that, one of the things that's so painful to me about the many many first person accounts of madness that I've read. Is the extent to which people were simply unheard, the extent to which people who, for instance, were in a locked mental institution, which of course is the uh, is true for the great majority of people who've written accounts of their experience they were on a locked ward, they were in some kind of a institution where they couldn't they weren 't free to um, recount what was happening to them um, there are so many people that have um, written accounts, or you know today, of course, we have many more kinds of narratives than just written accounts. We have blogs, we have oral histories, we have testimonies, um, and so on, but especially of the written accounts, so many people say i 'm writing this account now that I finally got out of that institution, and i 'm writing it using the scraps of notes that I kept that were hidden under my bed or in some more desperate cases written in blood on the wall or screamed out from a padded cell or an isolation room. I mean, people have gone to extraordinary lengths to be able to keep their own accounts of their experience when they're deprived of writing materials or any any way to really tell their story. So these are very and,
0: much like slave narratives or like prison prisoner narratives.
1: Yes, I think that is completely true. And let me just you know give the example. I, I called the book Agnes's Jacket um because and and on the cover of the book, and you can you can see this on the website, um uh there's a photograph of this jacket. Um let me just say a word about Agnes. It's Agnes wichter was a woman who was forcibly institutionalized in a German mental institution in the 1890s, and she was a woman who had lived a pretty successful life. She was trained as a professional seamstress, and she supported herself um, making clothes. And when she was in her 40s, she was taken to an institution against her will. She fought continuously to escape from this place. Unfortunately, she was never able to escape. She was kept there for the next 26 years until her death. But the reason we know about Agnes Richter today is because she took the uniform that she was forced to wear. Um, I don't know if people know this, but in the 19th century, uh, especially in Europe, mental patients were often forced to wear institutional uniforms like prisoners and as best as I can tell from from years of trying to piece her story together Agnes took her uniform and took it apart because she was a trained seamstress and she knew how to do this she took it apart and she re-sewed it into a very very beautiful jacket and on the surface of this jacket the entire surface, the inside, the outside, the sleeves, the collar she embroidered using thread of six different colors, a narrative of her life and we can only imagine the extraordinary power of this woman on a locked ward wearing this garment. We know that she wore it this this jacket is now in a museum in Heidelberg, Germany. We can imagine all the women around her were wearing these uniforms that looked like sacks or they were wearing jackets, another kind of jacket, and here she was wearing this absolutely beautiful garment that she had created herself, and on it is emblazoned the story of her life. And I think that the reason she did this was that she didn't have any other way of telling this story. No one would listen to her. I don't know whether she had any writing materials. Women often were deprived of writing materials, but they were, oddly enough, allowed to sew uh, in, in mental institutions. And she basically wore her story on her body.
0: It's a really incredible image, and it just speaks to the silencing that happens, that, that she would have that, that powerful desire to just get her story written in her own way as sewing it onto her own clothing makes me think of all the people who didn't have the strength or the courage that she had, all those voices that were just squashed, all the stories yeah. that were lost, all of the experiences that were discounted and the ways in which people weren't able to hold on to that voice of this is who I am, this is my narrative, this is my story, this is my life. And so now we have the example of these these heroes really like Agnes who were able to carry that story forward and get it out into the light of day as a way of reminding us about the people who, who who didn't and still aren't given the opportunity to be listened to and validated and have their own uh, life story uh, listened to in, in the way that they want to tell it.
1: Yes, exactly. And again, as we were saying earlier, what's so important to me is, is, of course, first of all, the human right of everyone to be able to tell their story in their own terms. But... Also, in the case of these people who've been labeled psychiatric patients, the content of their story, what they're actually saying in their story contradicts what mental health professionals are saying about them. So it's not, I don't even want to say it's not only, it's, it's of course partly that they have to have the right to provide their own account. But we have to ask the question, why are they not given this right? Why, why do they have to fight for the, for the opportunity to give their own account? And the reason is clearly because mental health professionals don't want to hear what people have had to say about their own experience because it contradicts so much of what is taken for granted in psychiatry.
0: Well the assumption is that well whatever you say about yourself is just a symptom of your broken brain that obviously you're just talking crazy and the more we listen to you the more we're kind of sucked up into your madness and so we have to sort of be separate and create our own professional interpretation. So Gail there's a way in which people talking about their own experience is seen as a symptom of a disorder or a symptom of a brain malfunction, but you're saying that there's actually a way in which what people have to say is threatening to the profession as well.
1: Yes, and that's especially true when people talk about how their so-called symptoms arose as a consequence of trauma. There are so many people who talk about sexual abuse, racism, other forms of trauma that they experienced, often as children, But maybe even later in their life, I've worked with uh, a lot of groups, for instance, in London, where there are uh, asylum seekers and refugees from all over the world, people who have been in horrifying situations of war and torture and abuse. And after they've gone through those situations and escaped from them, then they have so-called psychiatric symptoms, like they hear voices. They hear the voice of their abuser. They hear the voice of the person who tortured their entire family and shot their father in front of their eyes. And the idea that we should consider these accounts to be gibberish, nonsense, craziness is not only deeply disrespectful, but it's simply wrong. We have to understand how people come to have unusual and frightening and anguish-ridden experiences as a consequence of things that have happened to them. As, as Jackie Dillon, one of the uh, most inspiring people that I've worked with, who's an activist in the Hearing Voices Network in London, always says, don't ask what's wrong with you, ask what's happened to you.
0: And that, I think, brings us to the discussion in your book about the work of the Hearing Voices Network and the Freedom Center, which I co-founded in Western Massachusetts, which is really based around support groups that are all about giving people an opportunity to talk in their own words, free of professional censorship or professional control.
1: The reason I subtitled the book, A Psychologist's Search for the Meanings of Madness, is because I wanted to tell a little bit of my own story of coming to have a different understanding of these phenomena of psychosis, madness, whatever we want to call it. And I I wanted to include some of my own story, both because I was talking about people's stories, and I don't want to talk about other people's stories without um, making clear that, you know, I have my own subjective experience. But also, it gave me the opportunity to really take readers through the kinds of amazing moments that I myself felt when I discovered groups like the Hearing Voices Network and Freedom Center, and actually, let me just talk a little bit about that, because it was so revolutionary to me. I, I was um, working on these first-person narratives uh, in England um, five years ago, and I was talking to a lot of different people in a lot of different groups, and someone said to me, you know, you should come to this conference that we're having. That is, uh, it, it, The conference was called Beyond Belief which was a perfect title for it, Um, and it was the first conference I'd ever gone to where most of the people that were giving presentations at the conference, which was held in a very posh place at the University of London, um, most of the people who were giving presentations were people who themselves heard voices. And this conference was sponsored by the Hearing Voices Network, something that I'd never heard of before. This was in 2003, and that day really completely changed my life because I met all these people who were involved in the creation of a an alternative to standard mental health practice um, about this experience that psychiatrists call auditory hallucinations, a, a word which, of course, makes clear that it's being pathologized and seen as a problem. Um, and these people were talking about hearing voices, which is a much more neutral way of talking about it, and they recounted their experiences in these support groups that they had created outside the mental health system that were having powerful, powerful, positive effects on people's lives. People, Often people who had been in the mental health system for 20 years, 30 years, had had every medication, had had ECT, shock treatment, had had every kind of... Uh, uh, approach that had been invented and they still were suffering, and they were going to these support groups and transforming their experience. And through Jackie Dillon, who is now the uh, uh, chair of the Hearing Voices Network in England, um, and a number of other people that I met then, I came into contact with these groups, and for uh, several years I sat in on them in London and in other places in the UK and learned this completely different approach that had been developed by almost entirely by people who had diagnoses of schizophrenia themselves. And that, when I came back to the U.S., that then led me to find Freedom Center and other groups like it that were doing the same kind of thing in the U.S. And I say in the book, and I Believe this so deeply that Freedom Center and the Hearing Voices Network are leading us to a radical reconception of what madness is, how people can um, cope with experiences that are very difficult, and how they can completely recover from difficult situations that mental health professionals often have told them they will suffer with for the rest of their lives.
0: If you're just tuning in, this is Madness Radio. We're speaking with Professor Gail Hornstein. She is the author of *Agnes's Jacket, A Psychologist's Search for the Meanings of Madness. What's interesting in the formation of the Freedom Center, which uh, Oryx Cohen and myself found, I guess about eight or nine years ago now in Western Massachusetts, was that we had no idea that the Hearing Voices Network existed. We didn't know anything that, that there was a parallel kind of approach that was very very um, on the same wavelength going on in england you were actually someone who helped us connect with the international aspect of the work but i think that um, there's kind of like a real common sense uh, basis for all of this which is just people in distress needing to talk about what we are going through and connect with other people and to share what we've learned and to learn from each other about what works and and doesn't work and um, a sense of the pathologization and the force and the diagnostic labels and the focus on medications hasn't, hasn't served us that we really need to create community and we need to create spaces where we are listened to and can talk about what we're going through and so it was really amazing once we had gotten Freedom Center started To learn about all these other groups that were going on in in England was really remarkable to me. To um to make that connection.
1: One of the things I talk about in Agnes's jacket is the phenomenon in the recent history of psychiatry that has made this possible, and this is something that I think is so striking, but other other people haven't really written about this. That. After the 1970s, when the big public mental institutions started to close in the process that goes by the unpleasant term deinstitutionalization, and this happened across the United States and across the UK and across Europe pretty much at the same time in the 1970s and 80s, What people haven't realized, even though there are dozens and dozens of books on deinstitutionalization from an economic point of view and sociology and politics and history of psychiatry and so on, what people haven't noticed is something that I think is so important, which is that once patients were no longer locked up in institutions and kept separate from one another, it became possible to have an international psychiatric survivor movement because people could have conferences like the one I was just talking about, the Beyond Belief Conference in London. They could have, now these days, they can have internet connections. They can meet together. They can communicate with one another. And even before internet connections, they could collaborate with one another. They could write articles together. They could meet uh, in groups. And I think... This is just an absolutely crucial part of this history that even though deinstitutionalization was carried out for completely different kinds of reasons, it turns out that one of its unintended consequences, I think, is that it made it possible to have an international political movement in which people who'd been psychiatric patients or currently are could work together outside of the professionals' and outside of the system created by professionals.
0: Gail, what would you say to a listener maybe who might be all very new to this and might be saying, well, wait a second. These are people who are in psychotic, extreme mental distress, that they're crazy. How are they going to just get into groups and talk with each other? And how are they going to actually organize themselves? is not that kind of go against the whole... Idea that they're suffering from these disorders?
1: Yes, it does. It goes completely against that. And this is one of the things that I think is so important to appreciate and one of the reasons why I wrote this book. First of all, people are in different degrees of distress at different periods of time. One, one of the things that's most incorrect about standard views of psychosis is that the DSM or other systems like that assume that if people have ever been in a dissociated state or had a, a difficult, unusual kind of experience, that they're in it permanently. But of course, that's not true at all. People may have difficulties, and then they may have periods of time in which they're perfectly able to organize a group.
0: But they end up getting treated like they're just an invalid and they just can't take care of themselves. And then there's this, stereo, there's this stereotype that, um, you know, that's your just a schizophrenic, that's it. Exactly. That's just wrong. And also this is not to romanticize or to say that everyone is like that. I mean, there are many people who are in really extreme states and they're there in a long-term, ongoing basis. But I think the idea that it's a, a stuck place that doesn't have changes or shifts in it, I think is is a mistake. And also to assume that people are always going to be stuck in that state um, kind of puts them in a box and limits the expectation that maybe they can change or maybe they can grow or maybe they can learn from that, which itself is something that, that prevents their recovery.
1: Exactly. And of course, since people are at different stages in the process of recovery. It may well be, and I've witnessed this a lot of times myself, it may well be that people who are farther along in the process are the ones who, for instance, organize a support group. And then a variety of kinds of people come to it. I've been to many, many support group meetings where people come who are indeed, at that time in their lives, in a very difficult position and probably wouldn't have been able to organize something. But they can come once a week, or they can come every once in a while, and they are often transformed by the experience of being with other people who have walked in their shoes, been in the situation they're in, and are now moving past that. They share strategies for coping, with those difficulties, they talk about what those experiences are like, and they're able to move out of
0: them. Gail, give us some examples of some of the people that you've met and experiences that you've had in groups in, in England and also in your work with the Freedom Center.
1: One of the things, when, when you were talking about how um, mental health professionals wouldn't necessarily believe that people with a psychotic diagnosis could um, help one another or organize a support group, um, <coughs> when I was in England, I was uh uh... privileged to be part of um, the group that calls itself the paranoia network which is an offshoot of the hearing voices Mm -hmm. network And when i say that i went to a meeting of the paranoia network people often laugh and say well that can't be possible how could there be a paranoia network if people are paranoid they wouldn't want to be in a network with anyone else they wouldn't want to be in a group and it turns out that that's wrong it turns out that people who have The feelings of terror and suspiciousness of other people are desperate to find people that they feel like they can trust. They might not be able to trust everyone, but they certainly are going to be able to trust people who are in a similar kind of state. And Peter Bullimore, one of the people I write about in the book, who's now a very prominent activist in the UK. Um, Peter describes his experience of being someone who was on a back ward in some psychiatric institution and he was on so much medication that he was constantly drooling as a side effect of this medication. He had to wear a towel around his um, neck all the time because so much saliva was just pouring out of his mouth. He was completely non-functional. He couldn't do anything. And even though before that he had been a successful businessman, he was now completely non-functional. And Peter and others helped to, to found in Sheffield, England, um, the first paranoia uh, support group. And this transformed their experience. They could talk about what it was like, for instance, to be absolutely terrified to trust other people, uh, to think that uh, in, in Peter's particular case, he talked about his experience that uh, when he walked down the street, he thought that there were... Hidden messages in the numbers on um, automobile license plates. And he would be terrified if he walked down the street and he saw a license plate that had a certain kind of number on it. And he thought he was in real danger. And in the group, even if other people didn't have that particular experience, they had other experiences that people had discounted that seemed strange to other people and that they couldn't really talk about anywhere else. And coming to understand why did he have that experience? What did it mean to him? What was he afraid of? What was really at the root of those feelings was enormously helpful to him. And he's now a major organizer in the Hearing Voices Network and has a very successful consulting business um, called Asylum Associates. And it's a transformed person. It's very important that people realize that Support groups like this or the kinds of experiences I write about in *Agnes's jacket, this is not magic and this is not something that just automatically happens. People walk into a support group and then they're fine. That's naive and uh, really inaccurate. This is a difficult process that people go through to rebuild their lives. But the crucial thing I I just want to emphasize over and over again um, is that no matter how seriously distressed someone has been, They can recover fully from whatever difficulties they've been going through. It might take years. It might take a great deal of struggle and a great deal of support, but they can do it. And one of the most pernicious aspects of contemporary psychiatry is the emphasis that so many people um, uh, are given that says to them, you can't ever get better.
0: Gail, we've been talking a lot about this idea that there's meaning in madness, that if we listen to someone's story, if we help them to understand what it is that is they're going through, that some sort of meaning will emerge. And one of the things that I've noticed and we talked about a little bit before is is the role of trauma. Um, I know in my own voice hearing experiences, being able to connect them with uh, violence in my family, with the history of my um my father's a Korean War veteran, and the very chaotic uh, childhood upbringing that I had has been really valuable for me to understand that, hey, there's a reason why I start to hear voices, and there's a reason why I'm having these experiences. And When I went into the um, hospital for the first time, the doctors that interviewed me, they were very interested in my family. But what they were interested in was the history of mental illness because they saw it as genetic and hereditary. I was never asked anything about trauma. I was never asked any real story of my life at all. What was it like to be? And so to make that connection took me years to do on my own and i think that that's something that happens for a lot of people Um, i don't think that trauma is the answer to what madness is about but i think that having the the freedom and the space to explore that and to hear other people's stories about how their own traumatic paths have been driving their symptoms have led them to have these um, extremes of emotional distress to have experiences of hearing voices, to have experiences of extreme mistrust and paranoia and seeing visions and these kinds of things can be a really valuable way of exploring it. And another thing that I've also seen in the groups and from my own experience, and you mentioned the the um, paranoid moment of, of thinking that a number on a license plate is connected and has this meaning, this diabolical meaning for you, and there's this this kind of paranoid conspiracy behind it. A lot of the experiences that I've had in working with other people in support groups is that there's a way in which there's a spiritual component to this that is a way of saying that there's something right about my madness because it taps into a deeper, truer, and essentially good spiritual understanding of the connectedness of life that we're not just individuals who are separated in time and space, that we're all part of this very magical fabric that's talked about in the world's religions and that somehow the experience of madness or voices or visions or paranoia taps you into that spiritual reality. And then unfortunately it becomes overwhelming and you see it as a disease or a disorder, or you don't know how to cope with it. You don't know what to do with it, but it can also be part of a learning process to connect yourself spiritually and to go through a spiritual awakening. And that seems like that's also a thread that goes through a lot of the Hearing Voices network work internationally and also the people that that we've both met through the through the Freedom Center.
1: I have a whole chapter in the book called The Late Quartets, where I talk about um, James Melton, this man who had the kind of depression that's called psychotic depression or catatonia, where he was at the point where He literally could not move. He could not get out of bed. He could not do anything. His mind was filled with torturous kinds of images and thoughts. And I describe, actually he describes, and I just quote him, many, many of these. He's an extraordinarily articulate person. And he went through years in which he was simply unable to function and In his particular case, he was very lucky that he had some very loving friends who helped take care of him during that time. When he couldn't eat, he couldn't prepare food for himself. In another period of history, he would have had to be institutionalized because he couldn't function in any way. And he couldn't speak. And that's why, you know, using the classification system, he would have been diagnosed as catatonic. Um, And what was so moving to me about his story when he told it to me you know long series of talks we had, is that now that he's better, he could articulate in a very, very acute, precise, beautiful way what had been going through his mind during those years. And, you know, if you look at a psychiatric textbook and you look up catatonia, you would think that a person who is in a state like that, who is mute, who can't move, who can't communicate with other people, that they're not having any experience at all that they're basically dead, except they're still breathing. But James Melton talks in such, I call it, crystalline prose, because that's what it's like. And he's actually someone who writes a lot of poetry and reads a lot of poetry. And he, the most transformative experience that he talked to me about was when he was briefly institutionalized, and he was put in this ward, this psychiatric ward, and he was absolutely terrified. And what saved him at that moment was that he had a walkman and he listened to beethoven's late quartets and he connected his own feeling of anguish to that extraordinarily powerful musical composition and was able to really rise above the horrible circumstance he was in where he was locked up in a psychiatric ward with no one listening to him in any way and he could connect to a broader humanity to beethoven's own experience and I think that's so important, and it connects to what you're saying about whether you want to call it spiritual or humanistic, other kinds of experiences that people need in order to validate their own sense of themselves.
0: What are some other examples of, that you'd like to share from the book?
1: One of the people I write about uh, is someone um, called Peter Campbell, who is an activist in England. And Peter Campbell had the experience that many, many people have, where he was okay until he got to college. And in Peter's case, he was at Cambridge University in England, and before school even started, like in the first 24 hours that he was there, he had some kind of difficulty. And in retrospect, we might call it a panic attack, but at the time, he was taken from his college in Cambridge and taken to a psychiatric ward and he was labeled with bipolar illness and the entire rest of his life, he's now in his fifties, and the entire rest of his life was was changed as a consequence of that choice at that time of those professionals to understand what happened to him in that way. And Peter talks in very very painful detail about his many many hospitalizations since then and the ways in which the psychiatric establishment was never interested in trying to help him understand why this was happening to him. He was someone who had had a very advantaged education, and he came to Cambridge very ready to move forward and to be a successful student in a competitive university, and he was told that he wasn't smart enough to be able to be a university student, and he was devastated by that evaluation and his whole talent and his abilities of many different kinds were just seen as part of his problem and there are a lot of tragic aspects to his experience because even though he's made a lot of contributions to the psychiatric survivor movement now, he's written a lot of articles, he's spoken in a lot of conferences and so on and he's worked successfully in various parts of his adult life, he was never the same person after that happened to him at age eighteen and i think that happens to so many people in young adulthood
0: that also makes me think of my own experience the way in which my own kind of after school economic um... push to have a career and get involved and at that point was the environmental movement was really interrupted by not just my own emotional distress but the way in which i was labeled and hospitalized and the messages that i got and the uh, detour that my life took and the the expectation that, hey, you're not going to be able to be a full person. You're not going to be able to do what you want to do because you have this disease and it's a brain disorder and that's the end of the story. Rather than seeing this as a moment that's maybe a crisis moment, but you can fully engage with it and you can make it through and so many people do make it through. There are so many examples of recovery and people coming back and coming out of those experiences enriched and having found and learned things.
1: Seeing a difficulty like this as a crisis as opposed to uh, a symptom of a permanent illness is a transformative way of looking at it. I I don't agree with people, for instance, like Thomas Zaz, in his famous paper, The Myth of Mental Illness, that um, people, he talks about people having what he calls problems in living and that, you know, there is no such thing as mental illness and so on. I agree with him that mental illness is not the right way to describe people's difficulties, but I worry that calling them problems in living de-emphasizes the severity of many people's experiences. You know, Peter Campbell, when he was in this university lodging in Cambridge University when he was 18, and he was overwhelmed by some kind of feeling of terror and panic, I think calling that a problem in living doesn't really capture the extreme nature of it. But I think calling it a crisis can It is a crisis. He could not stay there. He could not stay there one more second. Something had to happen.
0: Yeah, by saying that there's meaning in madness and that people need to be listened to, we are not romanticizing people's suffering or saying that these aren't extreme experiences that are life-threatening experiences that can be incredibly destructive.
1: But that people can find their way out of them if they get the right kind of support. That's, That's what I really want to emphasize, because I think it doesn't help any of us to sound in any way as if we're saying people are not in terrible anguish when they're having these periods of crisis, because they are. They need help. They need support. They often can't cope on their own. But the idea that the only alternative is to lock them up in a psychiatric institution and pump them full of medications that may or may not help them, I think that's the problem. People need support and they need help, but they can get that in a whole variety of ways. I mean, going back for a minute to to James Melton, the person I was talking about in in the catatonic state, he could not have lived. He would have died because he couldn't eat. But he was lucky enough not to be in a hospital except for the, I think, 48 hours in which he was trapped there and during which he listened to Beethoven. He was lucky enough to have friends who took care of him other people have family members who help them other people have respite centers that they can go to or crisis accommodations where they can go for a period of time when they can't look after themselves and they need help but the idea that psychiatric institutions are the only alternative here i think is really the problem
0: and i think that's one of the directions that we're all trying to get society to move in is to have places that people can go that are sanctuaries, that are safe places, but without this diagnosis, without the control from professionals, without the radical silencing of people's experience, without the pushing of medications, to just give people a chance to go through what they need to go through with some support and some caring people around them. And, and maybe they have to be in a period of extreme distress for a while as a way of finding a way through it, rather than immediately trying to control the person and putting a label on them and medicating them as a way of tranquilizing and interrupting their experience, that there may be something valuable if the meaning can be explored and if they have a chance to, to, to go through what they're, what they're going through.
1: Absolutely and that that's why I actually I titled the last chapter of Agnes's jacket finding what works and what doesn't and I talk about a lot of alternatives that are already existing that people can check out to see how people all over the world are creating these kinds of alternatives to institutionalization and are finding ways to Provide the support that people need, because I think it's really crucial. It's crucial for for people who are suffering themselves, and it's very crucial for their families. And I, I just want to say that I think people's families are often discounted as part of the possibility of helping and of supporting. Of course, there are plenty of people who have families that, for one reason or another, cannot provide them with the kind of support they need. And uh, I really want to recommend to people the book that was just published, and I know you will have a chapter in this book, a very powerful one. Thank you. Uh, This book edited by um, Daniel Mackler and Matthew Morrissey.
0: Yes, it's called A Way Out of Madness, Dealing with Your Family After You've Been Diagnosed with a Psychiatric Disorder.
1: This book is such a powerful example of showing the variety of ways in which families can be connected or, in some cases, separated from people's healing. And I I really want to recommend it because I think it shows that diversity. I think it's it's wrong to make any kind of generalizations, any kind of absolute statements like people just have to get away from their families or people should embrace their families or turn to their families for support. It depends on the situation, but there are a lot of powerful stories in that book. Yours is one. Oryx Cohen writes a very different kind of a uh, an account to yours. Many other people write a variety of different responses to that question of how can the family be connected to or need to be separated from someone's process of healing.
0: Yeah, I think that's one of the big messages here is is diversity, that people need to be treated as individuals and individual situations need to be met as unique and exploring what's the particulars of this situation rather than having certain kinds of expectations that, okay, this is bipolar, therefore this is what is the best treatment, this is what's going to happen, this is the best way of approaching it because the person fits the category. The reality is that these experiences are way too complicated to put into boxes or to categorize. Gail, we are just about out of time. Give us contact information and also tell us again about your book and how people can get a copy of it.
1: Well, the easiest way is to uh go to the website, gailhornstein.com. You can order the book. Uh if you're in the United States, you can order it right from the website. It will uh link you to your local independent bookstore where you can get the book. And on the website, there is also a lot of other information available for free download, the Bibliography of First-Person Narratives of Madness that we were talking about before. Um, People are welcome to link to that on any site. They're welcome to download copies, distribute them, make use of them in any way that they'd like. There's also a resource list on uh, material about Hearing Voices and the Hearing Voices Network available for free download and a lot of interviews and other materials that are available there that people can have access to. The website is GailHornstein.com.
0: Gail Hornstein, thank you for joining us today on Madness Radio.
1: Thank you so much, Will. It was a privilege.
0: You've been listening to an interview with Gail Hornstein. Gail is a professor of psychology at Mount Holyoke College. She's the author of To Redeem One Person is to Redeem the World, the Life of Frieda Fromm-Reichmann, and the new book, "Agnes's Jacket, A Psychologist's Search for the Meanings of Madness. That's all the time we have on Madness Radio. Thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to Madness Radio, voices and visions from outside mental health. Madness Radio is co-sponsored by Peer Run Support Communities, Freedom Center, The Icarus Project, and Portland Hearing Voices. Hosted by Will Hall, music producer is John Rice, with technical assistance from Jeremy Lantzman. Listen to our internet stream, podcasts, and show archives at madnessradio.net. Madness Radio can be heard on FM stations on the Pacifica Radio Network, including KBOO in Oregon, WXOJ and WBCR in Massachusetts, Alaska's KWMD, and WPRR in Michigan. If you have an idea for a story or guest on Madness Radio, to help get us broadcast on a station near you, or if you just want to share what's in your head, contact radio at madnessradio.net.